The following broadcast is produced by Brookside Meeting House Companies, LLC, doing business as for Get Me Not Ancestry. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jane Wilcox, and this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Welcome to the show. This morning, our topic is New York City Germans and their churches, and my guest is Richard Haberstroh. Uh, he wrote a book uh, about uh, the churches of the New York City metropolitan area Germans. I had heard of the book. Uh, I actually, I will admit that I had not picked it up yet until uh, just recently, and I, I thought this would be an excellent topic to be on the show. The book is fascinating, has a lot of wonderful information, uh, and so I asked uh, Richard to come on the show and talk about uh, New York City Germans and, uh, and then also his book. So we're going to be looking at uh, Germans who came to New York City. Uh, what their life was like in Germany at the time, what caused them to come to New York City, where they were in New York City, and then the churches that they formed, and, and kind of the, the background in their their beliefs, the denominations that uh, they were part of when they were both in Germany and in New York City. So it's going to be a, a great show. And so, Richard, welcome to the show, and, and I'm glad you're here. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. <laughs> All right. So uh, as I ask all of my guests at the beginning of the show, what's your background? Where were you born, raised, your education, and your careers? Okay. Well, I was born in Midtown Manhattan at a hospital that no longer exists, like like so many, uh, St. Clair's. And I grew up in Queens, uh, in New York City. And um, my father was a New York City police officer, and my mother was a, well, eventually became a school teacher. Uh, she had studied uh, geology in, in college, but uh, I grew up in uh, parochial schools, and uh, eventually I ended up at Hofstra on Long Island uh, studying English. I got a degree in English, found out I was unemployable, went back to school, ended up with uh, some degrees in engineering, which has basically been my career for uh, most of my adult life. Okay. And then how did you get interested in genealogy? Well, I guess it was sort of a, a, a long, slow road at first. I had heard uh, a lot of stories about the family growing up, and it was they were always of interest to me. Uh, I think one thing that affected my uh, developing interest in genealogy was having studied German in high school and college, and that sort of became a uh, almost like a hobby for me uh, after I graduated from college. So I would try to get actually to the point where I could speak German, not just uh, answer questions on German tests in school. And, uh, and I learned a lot about German culture. I finally went on a trip to Germany. And based on some of the stories I had heard from the family about where the Haberstroh family had come from in particular, 
I, I kind of went to that area, which was uh, near the Black Forest in southwest Germany. And I really didn't know exactly where, where the family had come from, but I was just traveling around. And I, one night I stopped in a restaurant, and I think I might have paid with a credit card, and the owner of the restaurant saw my name, and she said, oh, gee, you know, there's lots of people named Haberstroh around here, which I kind of knew. Uh, she said, it's too bad you don't know where they're from exactly. And I, I thought to myself, yeah, it's too bad I don't know exactly where they're from. So as soon as I got back from my trip, I started doing some research. I think the first place I went was the Municipal Archives in Manhattan. And the first record I found was the death record of my immigrant Haberstro ancestor, who happened to be a fresco painter. And, uh, and just seeing that record, I can just remember so clearly just feeling like I was almost experiencing something directly from the event of his death, someone, you know, my direct ancestor. It really, I remember the feel, feeling so well. I thought, I'm really going to like doing this. And, uh, you know, 30-something years later, it, it hasn't lost its uh, its magic for me. So. All right. All right. And then you are also a professional researcher. Uh, yes, I am. Uh, that kind of developed again, just out of my love of of doing research and German research in particular. Um, I spent many many hours at our local uh, family history center in in Plainview on Long Island, and uh, I, you know, I I started to develop a reputation. Well, partly because I could at least read the records <laughs> that were written in German. So, you know, I would help people, and I, people encouraged me, well, you know, maybe you should become a professional genealogist. And, I mean, I already had a full-time career going, but I thought, well, that's something worth doing and worth shooting for. And uh, so I, I I put a little uh, effort into uh, honing my skills, and eventually uh, I got my certification with the, the BCG uh, a few years after that, I uh, sort of moved over to I, what's now called ICAP-GEN and, and became an, a, an accredited German genealogist. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, at the moment, I don't really normally take paying clients just because of the limits on my time. But uh, you know, I'm always happy to discuss people's research problems and point them in the right direction and maybe find a record here or there for them and do translations and that kind of thing. So it's, uh, okay. mm-hmm. And you also, uh, I read on your, uh, the bio on the website is you were mm-hmm. a, a founding member of the German genealogy group. And I'll, I'll mention, I'll give a plug for a show that I did a couple of years ago on the German genealogy group, uh, and the Italian German genealogy, I'm sorry, the Italian genealogy group, <laughs> yep. and the uh, indexing that they've done. So, so tell us about the German genealogy group. Oh yeah, well, I, I am, I guess, one of a couple of founding members of the group. Uh, although I can take little or no credit for all of the great work that they've done over the years, uh, I kind of made up the first flyers and got a bunch of people together and we uh, had probably two meetings before I just couldn't find time to uh, do much with it. So uh, other people 
took took it over and really have done a, a fantastic job. But the group is, uh, they're such an active group in terms of uh, getting records. Um, they were some of the main people involved in indexing uh, the vital records at the municipal archives and putting those online, and they've been collecting basically all of the local German records that they can uh, and indexing them and getting those online, and it's an ongoing thing. Uh, I, I know a lot of the members are also involved in the uh, marriage license records, indexing those, which sounds like it's a huge task. Uh, but, yeah, it, it's just a great group and uh, a nice group of people, and, and the amount of work that they that they get done for everyone is uh, is really amazing. Okay, all right. And then before we uh, talk about the history of, of the, in Germany, what percentage mm -hmm. of your ancestry is German? Ah, well, that's, well, sort of an interesting question because of my interest in German things and people find out I speak German and everything. They kind of assume that I'm all German or something close to that. But uh, my father is half German <laughs> and my mother is Hungarian. Uh, which, after some research, turned out to be a little more complicated. So she may actually be like a, a quarter German. So I don't know what that makes me, three-eighths or something roughly oh, okay. like that. <laughs> yeah. All right. So then let's talk about the Germans. So uh, mm -hmm. what was life like for them in Germany? You know, thinking politics and, and religion, since we are talking about the church records. Uh, sure. What was happening uh, for them prior to coming to the uh, United States or uh, America at the time. Yeah, well, um, there weren't so many changes going on in, in terms of uh, churches. I mean, things were somewhat uh, static, but uh, I mean, the, the social situation, it depends on what time period you're, you're talking about. Uh, probably the first major wave of um, German immigrants would have been in the colonial times, it started in the late 1600s, but uh, picked up in the 1700s. Uh, we sometimes refer to them as the Palatines, because a lot of them came from that particular, the Palatinate or the Pfalz, as it's called in German, in southwest Germany. And uh, politically, uh, there were some things going on. Probably the biggest thing going on in southwest Germany back then was a lot of wars, like almost continuous wars, including a devastating one in 1689. Um, so that was one issue. There was a lot of instability in, in that sense. Another thing that happened in that specific area of southwest Germany right after that war was that uh, the principality of the, the faults, which had been uh, reformed, and some of, and other principalities around it were mostly Lutheran, uh, but they there, a new line of rulers came in who were Catholic. So all of a sudden, in these Protestant areas, a lot of Catholics were welcomed in, and there were there were a lot of disputes between Catholics and Protestants, uh, and a lot of. Uh, uh, in particular, probably unhappy Protestants, they had to do things like 
share their churches with the new Catholic population and and things like that. So that I always imagine, although it's hard to determine everyone's reasons for 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 emigrating, but uh, back in the 1700s, it seemed like most of the immigrants to to the U.S. were were Protestant, and they were from that Southwest area. So I I always assume that some of the problems between the Catholics and the Protestants uh, probably caused them to uh, encourage them to move on. Uh, I mean, they also seemed, that was probably the beginning of the time when rural land was being divided up into smaller and smaller parcels and it became harder for more and more of the people to uh, make a living off the land. And, uh, you know, a lot of the... uh, emigration at that time was into rural areas where they they set up um, almost like German communities, either within pre-existing towns or sometimes just uh, new towns in the U.S. But uh, uh, that was that that period. Uh, Once you got into the the 1800s, in some ways the social situation – was probably more stable in Germany uh, after the Napoleonic Wars, and there was some consolidation within Germany into larger states. Uh, but um, people were getting poorer and poorer, and that was a period in which the population was starting to grow faster. More children lived to adulthood, and again, it became harder and harder to live off the land with the Industrial Re- Revolution. People were able to sometimes move out of rural towns into cities, but uh, it caused just in general a certain amount of movement. And since there were already some Germans in the United States, it seemed for many Germans just like a good opportunity. Well, you know, I can't make a living where I am. Should I move to a city in Germany or should I uh, go with some friends or or, uh, family members and move make a bigger move with more opportunity. And, uh, you know, as these things do, it started out slowly in maybe the late 1820s, 1830s, and built in the 1840s and 50s. And uh, some of the famines that affected Ireland, for example, also affected Germany. And uh, there was, you know, although some people point to the revolution of 1847-48, uh, which was a major political upheaval. Uh, I think all of those things together really caused a large push in immigration out of Germany uh, in the 19th century. So, uh, you know, I think the main thing for most people, in particular in the 19th century, who, who were emigrating was just they wanted to be able to make a better living, a more certain living in a, in a, uh, in a, more peaceful and open environment. Okay. And in the book, you talk about the, uh, a few of the religions. So we've, we've, or mm-hmm. denominations. So we've, we, you mentioned right. Catholic, you've mentioned Lutheran, right. you mentioned reformed. You also talk about evangelical, uh, which I, I right. understand was, was rising in the, the 1800s. So, you know, what's happening in Germany regarding religion? Mm-hmm. Well, um, the, 
I'll get to the word evangelical in a second. But uh, generally, after the uh, Reformation, there were only two recognized religions, officially recognized religions in Germany, Catholic and Lutheran. After the Thirty Years' War in the first half of the 1600s, the treaty recognized the, the Reformed Church, or the Calvinists, as a, uh, a third officially recognized religion. Um, and that, there were smaller re- religions, Baptists of various sorts. Uh, I believe the Mennonites fall into that category and groups that were called Pietists. But they were actually never officially recognized by uh, the government or governments in, in Germany. But um, so you you always had well, always, at least during the time of uh, immigration to the United States, you pretty much had three major religions, uh, Catholic, Lutheran, and Reformed. Now, the word evangelical, it's a little tricky because we're so used to talking about evangelicals as something different um, than the, the German word evangelisch means evangelical in the name of a German church really means almost the same as Protestant. So you could have even sometimes the name of the church could be an evangelical Lutheran church or an evangelical Reformed church. So the the word evangelical is kind of just a blanket term for, for Protestant, uh, in particular those two major Protestant religions. When you get into the ninth century um, this was again after the Napoleonic Wars and, and a lot of this were, were turned were combined into larger states there were larger autonomous states in Germany and some of the German governments wanted to combine the Lutherans and the Reformed or the Lutherans and the Calvinists into a single religion <clears throat> and when they did that that was generally in the 18-teens and 1820s, maybe into the 1830s, depending on the state. And not every state did it, because some states were so overwhelmingly one religion or another uh, that it wasn't necessary. But where they were combined, the Lutherans and the Calvinists were combined, uh, they simply called it the Evangelical Church. So... That carried over into this country to a certain extent, because in this country you'll have the Lutheran Church with its many either synods or sub-denominations, however you want to look at it. And you had the Reformed Church in different forms. But in, in the 19th century, there was also something called the Evangelical Association in the United States. So that was... I don't mean to use the term disparagingly at all, but it was that was sort of the generic German Protestant was was evangelical, and uh, I'm not quite sure what they <laughs> how they handled the differences in theology between uh, Lutherans and Calvinists, but uh, maybe that's why not everyone was was happy with combining Lutheranism and and Calvinism. Difference. Uh- in doctrine between Lutheran and Reformed, just just in general. 
so we know yeah. a little bit about the differences. Right. Um, and uh, I can never pretend, well, I could pretend to be a theologian, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've read a fair amount. I, I would say um, probably the biggest difference between Lutherans and really Orthodox Lutheran and Orthodox Reform is the, the their their view of salvation, where the Lutherans, one of their major, their major tenets is um, uh, justification through faith. So as long as you're uh, a believer in Jesus as your Savior, you will be saved, uh, regardless of you know the sins that you may commit due to the weaknesses of being human. Um, the the Reformed Church uh, traditionally um, has believed in predestination, so that every person who is born is predestined to either be saved or not be saved, and that sort of comes out of their view that God has complete power and nothing that humans do can affect or interfere with his power. So he's just because of the nature of God, he essentially, whether it's that he knows ahead of time or he chooses ahead of time, but we are all predestined for either salvation or, or the opposite. And uh, so that that's a pretty big difference. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, there are other things that have to do with uh, the meaning of communion at, at, in, the, in the services. Uh, but but I think that the view of salvation is probably the, the the biggest difference. And when we have the waves of Germans coming here, so we have mm-hmm. you talked about the Palatines. Was there one denomination that dominated that migration, German or I'm sorry, Lutheran or Reformed or Catholic? Well, in in colonial times it seemed like most of the immigrants were protestant both lutheran and reformed you'll see uh in the early german settlements in new york you know there'll be some german reformed churches uh, i think overall maybe just because there were more german lutherans than german calvinists uh you'll see more lutheran churches um uh, the, the the catholic Immigration, uh, there was some, of course, but it was seemed to be significantly more limited. Uh, in the once you get into the 19th century, where everyone seems to be leaving Germany for pretty much the same reasons, and it's not really so much uh, religiously based. Um, the the immigrants seem to be roughly in the pr- proportion of their population. Uh, in Germany, I would say. When, which which uh, is most? Is it Lutheran or? Oh, uh, well, I guess I've only seen the breakdown of Protestant versus Catholic, and it's very roughly two thirds Protestant, one third Catholic, maybe sixty forty, uh, and of the Protestants. I can't give you a number, but I would say the Lutherans are a significant majority uh, within the uh, within the 
the Protestants, I would say a smaller number than Catholics. Okay, all and, right. Uh, and then with with the migration in the 1800s, are, are people coming from throughout the German states? Well, there were certain areas that uh, that were definitely affected more uh, than others. And as I mentioned, in colonial times, we have the, the Palatines coming over, which is, you know, it's really not just strictly the Palatinate, but the surrounding areas. So anywhere from Baden in the southwest and Alsace uh, across the Rhine and north of Alsace is where the fault is. But And, and Württemberg, that whole southwest area was really where the overwhelming majority of them came from. Um, in the 19th century, uh, it was more spread out, but there were, the southwest of Germany was still uh, very much a hotbed of emigration, even in the 19th, 19th century. An awful lot of um, uh, immigrants came from that area. There were, but you know, things picked up in northern Germany and Hanover in particular. There are lots of immigrants from there, and basically, people from almost everywhere. I would say the one area that seemed to be the least affected it was uh, the Catholic part or the southern half of what's now Bavaria uh, in southeastern Germany, uh, which is kind of interesting because when you look at uh, uh, census records in the United States for German immigrants, you'll see so many immigrants who say they're from Bavaria. And they were from Bavaria, but they were mostly from either northern Bavaria, which the region is called uh, Franconia, uh, that it was an area that was only incorporated into Bavaria in the early 1800s. The traditional Bavaria, Catholic Bavaria in the south, uh, there were very few immigrants from. So they were either all these Bavarian immigrants into New York and other places in the United States were either from the northernmost part of Bavaria, which had just become Bavaria, or they were from the Faults, which nowadays isn't even part of Bavaria anymore. So it's it's a little confusing, which is why sometimes a little German history can help you to sort things out. <laughs> it sounds like it. So uh, right now we are going to take a break, uh, and when we come back we're going to talk about uh, the Germans in uh, the U.S. after they arrive. So this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back. This is the Forget Me Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. As you're listening on Blog Talk Radio, uh, you will see a follow button. If you press that button, you'll receive an email letting you know that the show is going on the air. Uh, You'll also see uh, some uh, social media buttons there as well. As you're listening on, on Blog Talk, please share the Forget Me Not Hour with your friends and family on social media. Um, also, on the Blog Talk page, you're going to see the Forget Me Not Hour archives. Uh, we have uh, over six years of shows, twice a month. Uh, first Wednesday is New York-related. Uh, third Wednesday is Whatever Strikes My Fancy. Uh, and the, many of these shows are timeless, so take advantage of the archives. Uh, you'll also find the Forget Me Not Hour on iTunes, uh, so you can take it on the go. And there, it's under Jane E. Wilcox. So today we are talking about uh, New York City Germans and their churches. Uh, my guest is Richard Haberstroh, and I forgot to mention the name of, of Richard's books. Uh, so it's The German Churches of Metropolitan New York, A Research Guide. So, um, Richard, we've got uh, our Germans uh, in Germany and their religions, and now they're coming to, uh, in the colonial period, uh, New York uh, province, and then in the 1800s, New York State. They are accumulating, uh, gathering in New York City. Uh, And I had done research for a talk on uh, what I call the New York Gateway, immigration, emigration, Mm -hmm. and migration, and learned that New York City had the third highest concentration of German-speaking people in the world behind Berlin and Vienna. Why did New York City uh, become this (laughs) mecca? Yeah, well... I think part of it uh, was partly because it was just such a large city and so many Germans, and not only was it the large city, but it was the most popular port for entry into the United States. So those two factors, once communities started to be developed within New York City, um, German immigrants, a lot of whom were, you know, even coming from rural areas, had a certain amount of education and perhaps had learned a trade or or, uh, even if marginally learned a trade, uh, they felt comfortable uh, living in a German community that they, you know, they didn't have to travel hundreds or thousands of miles to get to. And with the dense population in New York City, uh, People could live amongst their own kind and speak the language they were used to speaking to, and it made for probably the easiest uh, transition into the United States. I would think that uh, a non-English speaking immigrant uh, could have. Um, you know, it was. I guess it's one of those things that once a community starts to develop, it draws more and more people. Once there are more and more people, you know, there are they know more relatives over in Germany who, uh, you know, that that's their point of contact. And if they come to the city and they like it and they can find a job, why not stay? That was their, their primary reason, especially in the, uh, well, probably even in the 18th century, but especially in the 19th century, they were coming here to work and make a living. And, uh, what better place than a city that's, that's, uh, expanding and thriving. I'm sorry, you you were breaking up. I didn't quite hear that. Oh, where are we going to find them? 
in the New York City metro area. Oh, okay. Um, well, I guess the most well, uh, <laughs> I was going to say the most famous place, but actually the, the most famous place came later. But they settled uh, for the most part in Manhattan uh, in the early part of the 19th century, mostly beginning in the 1830s. Um, they were kind of on the outskirts of the city on the east side, which you know we now call it the Lower East Side. At that time, it was kind of the Upper East Side in a sense. Uh, so Alphabet City area, um, north of Houston, that would kind of be the northern limits of what was called Little Germany or Klein Deutschland. Um, but that really developed into a cultural center for uh, German Americans in the city. It, it kind of it was a fairly large area, from almost from the East River uh, over to roughly the Bowery, and from maybe Grand Street up to 14th Street. That kind of turned into its core, but it you know it extended a little beyond that even uh, to the north as the 19th century progressed. Uh, but it was. You know, just full of German institutions, German libraries, and and social clubs, and uh, beer halls, and and uh, everything that everything a German immigrant could want, basically. And of <laughs> course, German churches. <laughs> uh, All right. Many of them. Um, so that was the center in Manhattan, but there were other little pockets of of. of of settlement over uh, what would now be Soho, up on the up uh, the Upper West Side along Broadway, maybe in the, like the 50s, uh, places developed there. Really major spot uh, was right across the East River from Klein Deutschland in Williamsburg. Uh, even though the numbers there may not have been quite as large in terms of the number of German immigrants living in Williamsburg, uh, the impression I get just from all the censuses and other kinds of records that I've looked at for those areas, that seems to be even have a higher percentage of Germans within uh, the German district there. It's really kind of amazing. Uh, and there were also, uh, there was a good concentration in the South Bronx and Morrisania, the Melrose uh, area. And as there were a number of German churches there Lutheran and even a German Catholic church up there. And you include uh, New Jersey in your book as well. Yeah, I, it, it made sense to me. You know, I when I was putting that book together, there were a lot of ways in which I didn't, I wasn't sure where to draw the boundary. Uh, sometimes it's hard to define what a German church is, but uh, so I was kind of liberal in that regard. Uh, just because I figured it's more helpful to include more churches than fewer for researchers. But, yeah, in terms of geography, uh, Jersey City and Hoboken, again, had very dense concentrations of Germans in, in parts of their cities. And since they were just across the river from Manhattan, I, I felt it made sense to uh, to include that. And a lot of immigrants moved back and forth between uh Lower Manhattan and uh, Jersey City and Hoboken. Okay. And in the book, you, you talk about 
those Germans, particularly in the 19th century, that that when they got here, um, they maintained strong ties uh, to Germany in terms of their customs, their traditions, the language, um, almost like they, they didn't want to Americanize. And mm. is that a true characterization of, of, of what was happening with them? Actually, I, I think what really drew them together and, and, and uh, was the fact that they really were the only major group in the United States that wasn't English-speaking at the time. Um, I, I, and, and there certainly were others. You know, There were people who spoke, still spoke Dutch and in certain areas French, but in, in New York City, once you get to the mid 19th century, uh, you know, German speakers, there were so many of them. Um, I think that's what made at least the first generation so, feel so comfortable to be in a community where they had the kinds of institutions they were used to and could speak the language. And, and in their churches, a lot of the pastors and ministers felt that keeping the German language was important to the people keeping their faith probably because you know they were taught religion in german and they could relate to the preaching in german better than they could in english so that was actually a, very important for uh the german churches to to keep german alive uh, in the community in particular for the for the immigrants so on for that early generation, yeah, there is a, a real bond between uh, the immigrants and their German customs and language. But what I've noticed in, in the research that I did, it it didn't, it wasn't that the next, the first American-born generation, or maybe the generation after that, wasn't interested in, in their German culture, but. Uh, of course, growing up in in the United States, they would learn English, and uh, a lot of the Lutheran churches would then have, uh, and and the Catholic churches would have services both in German and English. And one thing in particular that I notice is sometimes even the first American-born generation will quickly move from L- Lutheran churches to Episcopal churches, and. Um, so I think there was really no fear of, of uh, becoming Americanized, uh, and in a lot of cases, a strong desire to become just you know a, a standard red-blooded American citizen. Um, and you know, within a few generations, I, it seems like uh, maybe more so than even some other immigrant groups. Uh, eventually, a lot of the customs were were lost. Um, one interesting thing in terms of the language, um, there were a lot of German language churches still in the United States up until World War One. Um, uh, World War One, because the Ger- Germany became the the enemy, there was a big push throughout the United States to not have people speaking German, and that included in the churches. So uh, that had a, a major effect on uh, people in German families not learning German anymore and f- having fewer and fewer German language 
uh, uh, services in the churches. So that actually marked uh, a big downturn in in the the retention of German culture and and language in the United States. Sure. And I was uh, doing research for a client in uh, mm-hmm. his, his German ancestors were in Albany, and they were mostly members of an evangelical uh, German Protestant church there. And mm-hmm. the records were in German into the early 20th century. Uh, so very interesting. Right. Right. Um, so so what's the, the early uh, the, the immigrants uh, and and the church records. Uh, you know, you meant you talk about how these records in the German-speaking churches are a little different uh, from mm-hmm. other churches that we may be researching in t- in terms of identifying people and their origins in Germany. Will you talk a little bit about that? Right, and and um, I think. Uh, you know, I, I probably had a different idea about this a few years back, but um, it, it always, and that might have been because, uh, you know, my experience had been mostly in German churches and then Irish Catholic churches, but um, the, the 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 German records in German language churches tend to mention uh, if there's an immigrant involved in this service, whether they're the parent of a child or whether they're immigrants getting married, they tend to specifically mention uh, where the person was born in Germany. Now, that holds for for German language churches here. Um, there, there were actually there were some exceptions to that. <laughs> there's one church in particular that I can think of uh, that my uh, one branch of my family was was involved in, and uh, they happened to have a pastor who was American-born. He spoke German, and the con- this was what's now St. Paul's Lutheran Church on the west side. Um, their first pastor was American-born, but he spoke German, and they were a German-language uh, congregation. But he kept all his records in English, and... He never, ever, actually, I found one instance in, in the course of about 30 years of records where he mentioned uh, a place that someone was from. And, <laughs> I, I, you know, being American-born, even though he spoke German, I guess he just didn't think in terms of, well, the towns that people were from were important, whereas most of the German pastors in in these german american churches german language american churches were uh were were german born and they understood of 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 people's hometowns and they it it meant something more to them apparently so they usually did hesitate to include that information uh in the records which is incredibly helpful now as I said, my, my view of this may have changed a little bit over the years. I mean, in, in English-speaking records, whether they're Catholic or Lutheran or anything else, you, you tend not to have that happen. Uh, but I do know that in some of the other um, national, well, I'm thinking Catholic churches in particular, because I've, I've looked into like uh, Hungarian Catholic churches 
um, and uh, uh, Italian a little bit. They seem to also do the same thing. So I think it's it's pretty much a function of uh, the pastor or the person taking the records having that connection to Germany so that the towns just mean more to them and, and they know it means more to the uh, to their congregants. Very interesting. So when I was reading your book, you mentioned that uh, there are German Methodists. Now, I hadn't mm-hmm. considered Germans being Methodists. I, you know, I always thought British Isles. You know, that's the right. that's where Methodism originated. So, but it makes sense because New York City was the hotbed of Methodism during this time. So, do you have any idea how many Germans embraced Methodism? You know, are there a, is it a lot? Or yeah, well, um, I don't think it was really a lot, just based on the number of churches. I mean, there could be, you know, First German Methodist in Lower Manhattan was it was a decent sized congregation. There weren't that many other uh, German Methodist churches. Um, so I, <clears throat> I think it's just a Sometimes just a question of the American congregations were interested in this whole new large influx of immigrants, and so they 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 would start mission churches to serve them, and you know, and draw them into their con- congregations and uh, have them become members of their church. Uh, the Methodists were very active in it. The Presbyterians were very active in it. Um, the difference with the Presbyterians is that their religion is basically uh, a form of Calvinism, so Reformed Germans could probably relate theologically. Uh, but I personally always wonder, well, you know, if an immigrant comes to a certain uh, part of the city and there happens to be a mission church that has services in, in 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 German, and you know they're Protestant, and it's a Protestant church. Uh, you know, maybe some of them really aren't that concerned about what exactly the denomination is. A Protestant church in German language, maybe they like the pastor, and you know they become members. But uh, yeah. Well, to your point, I, I never heard of, of Methodists in Germany, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm sure there are some Methodist churches now, here or there, maybe in the cities. But, yeah, that was uh, definitely a British Isles and American phenomenon. But the, the, the mission churches were all over uh, New York City. Some of them were very short-lived. Most of them had very small denominations. But, you know, there were a couple of decent-sized German Methodist churches, and you'd have a couple in Brooklyn also, um, and also German Baptist churches. Um, again, there's a little more of a uh, Baptist uh, connection in Germany. Uh, but yeah, Methodists do kind of stand out <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we are going to take a break. When we come back, we are going to talk about the book and, and what we're going to find uh, in the book regarding the churches of New York City, the German churches of New York City. Uh, this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Uh, Coming up in two weeks, on March 15th at 10 o'clock in the morning, Eastern Time, uh, the show is going to be featuring Freedmen's Bureau Records. And my guest will be Tom Reed. He's the senior marketing manager for Family Search. Uh, so he's going to be talking about the uh, the indexing project that happened for these records. These were records created by the Freedmen's Bureau uh, right after the Civil War. Uh, and so we'll be talking about the indexing project and, and what's in these records. Um, so that's on uh, March 15th. And then on April 5th, uh, I'm going to rebroadcast a show uh, that we uh, did a few years ago. Um, that again will be at 10 o'clock in the morning, and the rebroadcast is going to be the Dutch Reformed Church and their records. My guest uh, was Russell Gassero, who's the archivist for the Reformed Church of America. Um, so that will be a rebroadcast, and I'm going to be updating uh, a little bit on the blog talk page uh, from what uh, Russ said in that interview and then what the current state of some of these records are. Um, so that will be on April 5th. Um, also, uh, for people in uh, the New England area and elsewhere, uh, the New England Regional Genealogical Conference is happening at the end of April. And you can register now. Um, it's affectionately known as NERC, so it's N-E-R-G-C. Uh, I'm going to be speaking three times there. Uh, so I'm going to be uh, doing the best New York repositories talk on uh, Thursday and then on Saturday I'll be giving my New York Gateway talk, Immigration, Emigration and Migration, which will be sponsored by the New York, New York Genealogical and Biographical Society and then I'm also giving uh, the APG Luncheon talk the, the Association of Professional Genealogists and that is uh, Forget Me Not, Remembering Our Grandmother's Stories, which is a really fun talk. So come out to NERC and uh, as I said, you'll see me there uh, speaking three times. Um, if you have questions for any of my upcoming guests, uh, please contact me at janewilcox.com. Um, I'd love to hear from you. If you also have feedback or ideas for future shows, um, please contact me. So today we are talking about uh, New York City churches, uh, uh, German churches, and we are going to extend our show uh, by about 10 minutes or so. Um, it's, now we're talking about the book, uh, The German Churches of Metropolitan New York, A Research Guide. Um, so, Richard, why did you write this book? Well, I, it was probably out of my own need based on uh, – uh, all the research I was doing in New York City for German immigrants. Uh, my own family uh, has six different German immigrants who came into New York City between, uh, well, I guess it's 1835 and 1852. So, and they were of various religions. And um, between that work and uh, the work I was doing for other people, I was constantly trying to figure out what church books existed where and what churches and uh, all these people might have attended. And since there was no such book, I thought, well, this might be helpful to people. I know it would be helpful to me. And uh, that started me on, on a lot more work than I ever thought it would be. <laughs> but uh, uh, it was uh, certainly a labor of love and uh uh, I'm, I hope that it's uh, helpful for other researchers. Uh, it's unfortunate that, you know, my hope was 
for every single, at least major church uh, that I could find that was either populated by many German Americans or was a specifically a German language church that I would eventually be able to locate the records of every one. But unfortunately, that uh, wasn't the case. But sometimes uh, it's good to even know where the records don't exist so you don't spend a lot of time uh, looking for them. But in most cases, the major church (laughs) records still exist. I was going to say, absolutely. It's very useful to know if the church records (laughs) don't exist. Uh, So what would you (laughs) percentage would you say of the churches that you feature do have lost or or missing records well i i would i would have to think more mostly in terms of the the major congregations that existed for a significant amount of time there aren't really that many uh for one thing most of the catholic churches still have all their records sometimes they're in an archive and sometimes they're in a a nearby parish, uh, so it helps to know where they are. The, the Lutheran churches, again, most of them have their records. There were a few smaller congregations. Uh, actually, I think you know there were there were different types of Reformed churches. They weren't all. They didn't all become part of the Reformed Church in America. Um, and you know they might have gotten shuffled around. I, that was pro- those were probably the churches that I had the hardest time locating records for. Were the smaller Reformed churches? Uh, I know one church. You know they they closed the building and a new congregation, a totally different denomination, moved in. And I, I can't tell you how many phone calls and visits I made, and we could never find the records, and just had to assume that. The new congregation came in and said, what are these, and threw them out. Uh, unfortunately, those kinds of things happen, but it's, it really isn't that common uh, among, the, among the larger churches and, and the major denominations. Um, okay. There were uh, One story was kind of interesting. I think uh, if my memory serves me well, I think it was actually the German... Methodist Church, the first German Methodist Church, and the books ended up in some little church in uh, Ridgewood just because someone realized they were German, and that was the only German church they could find, and they gave them to them. So uh, there were some success stories in terms of records that were lost and then were found. All right, all right. So what what are we going to find in the book? What do you... uh, uh, talk about right um, or write about yeah the the bulk of the book of course is listings of churches um, I have it broken down geographically according to what I thought made the most sense uh, so there's uh, two different sections for Manhattan one for the Bronx one for Queens two for Brooklyn one for uh, New Jersey, including Hoboken and, and Jersey City, uh, and then within those sections, they're broken. The sections are broken down further into uh, Protestant, well, Lutheran, Reformed, and then other Protestant churches, and then Catholic churches. And it's it's a listing uh, of all the churches that were either 
distinctly German congregation serving German immigrants, which usually means German language. But I also included churches that were located, that were of the right denomination and in the right location, and from what evidence I could find, might have served a significant number of of German immigrants. So I kind of broadened the definition of German church a little, as I said before, just to kind of help researchers out. So that listing, it, it's the churches are listed chronologically within each section in terms of the date that they were a geographical area. And then I give dates where they moved to different locations. And uh, I have notes about the records, where the records exist, whether there are microfilms. In the cases of the Protestant churches, I list all the pastors' names that I could find. And there's an index to the pastors, uh, Protestant pastors in the back of the church. So that's the, uh, the, the bulk of the book. But there's a lot of introductory material about uh, churches and denominations in Germany, uh, the immigrants and their communities here in the United States, and, uh, the, and in particular about the denominations in the United States so that uh, a researcher can make a little sense as to, well, which congregation, not necessarily congregations, but which denominations merged with other denominations over time and they changed their name. And a lot of that is helpful in trying to track down others' sources of church books and where archives are and what archives would be ser- would be related to what churches. So uh, um, it's, a, it's a mix of uh, some historical material and uh, uh, just basically the research guide part. And do you have an idea how many churches in all you feature? <laughs> you know, before, before uh, doing this interview, I was going to take a look and and I and I forgot to do so. So I, <laughs> I don't know. All I can so, tell you is, uh, let's, uh, I can make a guess that there's about uh, 80 pages of church listings with an average of about, let's say, five per page. So it's a, it's got to be a few hundred at least. Wow! Wow! Yeah. All right. That yes, I, I was amazed at how many churches that were were featured. So, yeah. um, when we're using uh, these uh, German church records, uh, mm-hmm. what types of records are we going to find? I know it, it's it's going to be you know hit or miss with some churches what records have survived and right. Uh, right. you know. So, in, in general, what what kinds of records are we going to be finding from these churches? Well, they would be pretty much what you expect to find. You know, the major things being baptisms and marriages. And in terms of getting information, the uh, the marriage records tend to be the most reliable in terms of giving you the names of towns that people were from and uh, and other additional information. The baptismal records will often do that, but 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 not always. So those are that's definitely the largest part of these records are the baptisms and marriages. Uh, surprisingly to me, uh, after doing a lot of research in German records and then looking at the German American records, 
there often are not a lot of death records uh, in the in the German American church records. I'm not really sure why that is, unless it was um, just thought not to be necessary because, uh, you know, especially in New York City, there have been uh, civil death records kept since the late 1700s, at least still, you know, still available from the late 1700s. But uh, um, some churches will have a few sketchy death records. Others will have um, a very complete sets. Actually, St. Luke's Lutheran Church from the uh, west side, I forget exactly the street, uh, around 50th Street, uh, but they happen to have the greatest, <laughs> most complete set of baptism, marriage, and I, I just bring them up because of the death records. They have uh, great death records in terms of uh, throughout all of them that I've seen, they give the place of birth of the person who who is uh, who's of the deceased. And uh, I've come across another one of those up in St. John's Lutheran in the Bronx, but uh, so those are the those are the main things. Um, sometimes the sets of records will have communicants, uh, which can be helpful uh, to kind of locate your family in a given church. Uh, sometimes there'll be confirmation records. Uh, again, that usually doesn't do too much more for you in terms of research, and then just tell you that, well, my, my uh, family was associated with it, but uh, kind of the usual vital records that you want, but uh, um, with the added the added joy of reading them in German. Okay, all right. And do you have any tips for researching our Germans in the New York City area? Well, I, I think probably the main tip would be uh, especially when you're dealing with ch looking for church records, keep an open mind as to their religion because um, Germans did not seem to hesitate to intermarry in terms of religion, especially in this country. So you may know that you know your grandfather was Lutheran and the family went to the Lutheran church and whatever, but that doesn't necessarily mean that his father was Lutheran and uh, or his grandfather, whoever the immigrant was, and also, you know, two immigrants of different religious backgrounds come to this country. They, you know, you don't know which which uh, denomination church they will be married in. It could be Catholic, could be Lutheran, could be Reformed, could be evangelical, maybe it was even uh, the German Methodist Church. Uh, so that's, I find a lot of people starting out with uh, German research in, in, in the United States and New York City in particular, that they can start out being very sure that, well, they had to be this religion because everything I've ever heard of was that religion. But I think sometimes people don't realize that and certainly not not every person is the same, but overall, just because of the mixed background in Germany, it seems like Germans were a little more uh you know willing to uh, to marry someone that wasn't of their faith 
Okay. So th and that's one major tip. <laughs> there are okay. a lot of little details about how to deal with the records, but uh, that that would uh, some of that's in the book actually. So okay, that might be helpful. all right. So they, you have to buy the book to. <laughs> to you buy have those. to buy. It. <laughs> yes. Um, so with the the church records that have are are in existence, you know, have many of them been microfilmed or translated, transcribed? Um. I would say, well, again, dealing with New York City, most of the major uh, German language or German American Protestant churches have been microfilmed uh, by LDS. Uh, most of them, but not all of them. And when I say most of them, I'm kind of thinking of uh, in Manhattan. Um, uh, there are. There are some that haven't, and some important ones. St. Paul's, uh, which was founded around 1840, uh, they have all their records in the church, but you know, they're not microfilmed, and uh, none of the Catholic churches are microfilmed. But as uh, some of us have learned, uh, the archdiocese uh, apparently will be digitizing all of their records, and that would include the German-language Catholic churches. Uh, uh, so that that will be a good thing, and hopefully in the near future. Uh, but in terms of microfilm, uh, the Catholic churches are not available on microfilm. Most of the Protestant churches are, but not all of them. Okay, and you you mentioned the digitization. Of what's mm -hmm. where will we find them digitized? Oh, I believe they're going to be on when the archdiocesan uh, records are done and digitized. I believe that's going to be on Find My Past. At least that's that's what I've read, which uh, is a site I haven't used much, but uh, that may that may change when they have all of the New York City Catholic records on. Uh, so that that will be that'll be a huge. A, a huge boon to a lot of researchers uh, in this area. Definitely, definitely. So did you go to each of the churches to look at the records that they had? I went to most of the churches. Uh, if uh, if I felt based on various documentation that I had uh, and from calling the church that, you know, I was sure that they had the records there. I didn't necessarily go to look to look at them and see, you know, to check what they had. Um, but um, I went to as many as I could. In particular, I would go to the churches where um, if I called them up, they said, oh, I don't know what we have, <laughs> which was extremely common. So that was usually when I... Uh, Hopped in the car and and drove in and uh, and and tried to f tried to help them find the records. <laughs> uh, and sometimes we were successful and sometimes not. But uh, it was uh, it was actually a lot of fun visiting all the all those churches and not just seeing the churches, but uh, seeing the, the just the different styles of record keeping and all the original records and the old books. It was, uh, that was, that was, that was the fun part. <laughs> <laughs> so since you wrote the book, is there any German church that has surfaced, uh, that 
or or a church that you have since found that that should have been included in the book or what right actually that's a pretty good question there were uh you know i don't i don't have it in front of me now but there were maybe one or two very very small congregations sometimes this associated with another sort of institution that people pointed out to me uh and I made a note of it in the in the back of my copy uh but really nothing nothing major no new records were found and uh you know I I don't think I missed anything uh too critical in terms of uh, what I included as far as congregations. Okay. If anything, right. some people may complain. I, compl- I, I, I put too many churches. In. <laughs> <laughs> it makes their, their search a little more extensive. Uh, <laughs> That's right. So do you have a, a story uh, that you can share about researching Germans in New York City? Uh, it's either, you know, something that you found out about a person or you uh-huh. know, something that, that while you were using the records, uh-huh. Well, yeah, there is, I mean, there are a lot of stories, but probably the, the one that sticks out the most in my mind has to do with my own family and, um, you know, the Haverstow branch in particular, and they were, uh, they were Catholic and they attended the first German Catholic church in New York City, which was St. Nicholas. It's now closed and their records are at most Holy Redeemer, which was only like two blocks away, uh, another German language Catholic church. So, you know, I found out that that's where my uh, immigrant ancestor was married. I contacted them. Uh, This was when they were a little more liberal about letting you look at the book. They actually passed the book to me and I got to uh, look at it uh, myself and uh, make a photograph of it. And then I contacted them about the baptism of the children uh, and I knew who the children were based on censuses and those kinds of things. And they found all the baptisms except my great-grandfather, who was like the middle child. So the parents married there. All the children baptized there except the one in the middle, who was my great-grandfather. And this drove me nuts for years. <laughs> and I, uh, I would write them letters. They wouldn't let me search the books. Um, directly, but um, uh, I I wrote them letters. I said, well, he's got to be baptized in the same church. I'm sure he is. And I said, no, no, he's not in the index. And I said, but could you maybe search? I I have a birth record for him, and it gives a date of birth. Uh, I said, could you search for, like, from that date of birth forward for a few months? And they got back and said, yeah, we did that. No, he's not in there. Um, I, you know, I basically kind of gave up and I felt happy that I had a, a birth certificate for him. Um, I happened to do an indexing project, well, actually a translation project for that church because their oldest records, no one in the church could read. They were just impossible to read. So I translated them for them. They, they allowed me to go in, photograph them, and translate them. And in the course of doing that, I happened to have the opportunity to open the baptismal book where I thought my great-grandfather should be, and 
I started at October 1st, which was supposedly his birth date. And then for some reason I said, all right, I'm going to go backwards. I went backwards like a month and there he was. And so, so I, I ran into this situation where his, his birth record was, was incorrect. And he was actually born a month and a half before it said on his birth record. Uh, so there was that problem. And then there was the problem that he was in the book and this was, it was written in big letters at the top of the page. Maybe somebody thought it was the heading of the page, but it didn't end up in the index to the book. So anyway, this was like uh, such a major find for me. And uh, I guess the, the moral of the story is you have to search yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you really need to have the records available to, to do a proper research job and uh, don't trust old New York birth registers. <laughs> yes, yes, very, very interesting. So how can we order the book? Uh, well, I know you can go online and get it through uh, New York Genealogical and Biographical Society, NYGNB. And uh, uh, actually, I'm not even sure what format it's offered in at this I assume they still have some of the original hard-covered uh, volumes available. Okay, um, and it's it's a steal at, at I believe thirteen dollars. All right, uh, all right, and the link uh, for ordering the book from the GNB is on the blog talk page. Um, you you're speaking uh, in the next couple of months. Where will we find you? Okay, I will be giving a talk with the German genealogy group uh, that we mentioned earlier. I, that'll be the first Thursday in that's the first Thursday in May, uh, and I'll be talking about Klein Deutschland or Little Germany. So that should be uh, very appropriate to what we're talking about here today. Um, I'm also giving kind of a tutorial on German research out at the Suffolk County Historical Society, and I can't remember the exact date, but I believe it's in June, maybe uh, the end of June. Um, and if anyone happens to be in Minneapolis in July, uh, there's a, the first annual International German Genealogical Conference, and uh, I, uh, I'm happy to be able to do a couple of talks out there on German research. So, uh, All right. Keeping busy. Very good. Very good. So uh, in addition, actually, before I ask my last questions about your own ancestry, mm -hmm. is there anything else you would like to add uh, about uh, Germans and their church records in New York City? Um, not really, except uh, in terms of people being <laughs> nervous about looking at any records in German. Um, I, I encourage people uh just to dive in and you know if if you if you really want to get the information from a record you will get the information there i mean there are, one thing with german is it's it, the older german records are not written in the same script that we have but uh you know you it's when you put your mind to it you can learn to read them you can find people who can read them for you don't don't be discouraged because the records are in a foreign a foreign language. It's uh, you know, it's doable. If I can do it, you can do it. 
<laughs> All right. All right. So then uh, your own ancestry, in addition to your three-eighths German. Right. <laughs> uh, right. Well, my uh, my father's mother was um, uh, half Irish and half, I call it English, but it's sort of Engl- English by way of New England, and the name that was passed down isn't even an English name. It's uh, the name is Gunnison, which originally was a Swedish name, but apparently either Swedish or possibly Danish. But uh, Gunnison came over with the English to Boston in the 1630s. So it's uh, so on my father's side, I have the German and some Irish and English. On my mother's side, that was kind of the biggest surprise because. You know, her parents came from Hungary. They spoke Hungarian. They lived in New York City. Um, and when I started doing research, I started to find all kinds of interesting things. They were actually from uh, the part of uh, Hungary that's now Eastern Slovakia, and it was a mixture of Ruthenian, sometimes called Rusin, which is similar to Ukrainian, some Hungarian, some Slovak, a lot of German. So uh, it was even before they got here, they were in a melting pot. So it was yeah. my mother's ancestry. I don't even know how to describe. I just say, well, it's some combination of of Hungarian, German, Ukrainian, and Slovak. <laughs> okay, but Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe, right? Yeah, yeah. And is there any one ancestor who has called out to you? Um. I don't I don't know. I think it might be my great great grandfather, the uh the fresco painter. I think partly just because it was such an interesting occupation and uh maybe because, you know, he also carries my surname and I have a picture of him and a lot of things just uh I feel kind of connected to him in that way and uh uh Actually, I, one of the things that I always wished I could find was some actual fresco work that he did in New York City because he, he was here for about 40 years working as a fresco painter. But it's very difficult to uh, find any records of who did those kinds of things, and whether it's in churches or public buildings or, or whatever. But I think I, I think I feel the closest connection to him. Okay. All right. So, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, just been very fascinating learning about the Germans and and their churches and their uh, religions. Uh, So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome, and thank you. It was really a pleasure. All right. Uh, This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Have a good day. Oh, oh, oh. 